Yeah, so... No, it's good. All right, fantastic. And I went through a lot of stuff, but what really, really made um, a lot of impact on me and some of the people that I was talking to was a law graduate. Most people would have studied either music and everything, and here you are today running a music business. Is there anything um, that maybe connected you to music or was it just mainly from law that you started working in the business of right. music? So first of all, I was born in Nigeria, mm -hmm. um, moved to the US when I was nine. And when we moved to the US, like my parents basically put us in like every single activity possible, including like instruments. So um, I played the viola, I was classically trained on the viola and oh. the clarinet. Um, I don't play much anymore, but during pandemic, I picked up my viola again. I got it restored and everything. So maybe, you know, one day I'll come back. But um, I played in um, a youth orchestra in Texas where my parents moved. Um, so yeah, I think like music has always been a part of my life in some way, shape or form. I certainly at the time didn't think it would be, you know, my profession. Mm -hmm. My parents are immigrants, so that was not really a thing, you know, and I wasn't really good enough in, in the instruments, to be honest, but mm -hmm. I really loved it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's my connection to music. Um, I ended up going to university and then um, I graduated in 2009 from university. Mm -hmm. And right when you're about to figure out, you're supposed to figure out what you're supposed to be doing after university is when the markets crashed. Mm -hmm. So I went to Princeton for undergrad. Yes, a lot of Steve Jobs. And, um, and so like a lot of, you know, in the IVs, a lot of people were trying to get jobs in the banks, but there were like no jobs in the banks. So I was like, all right, well, like a lot of my family members are lawyers, so I'll go to law school. My dad is a lawyer. Um, and he was like, are you sure it's not really like your personality, you know? And I was like, no, I think it'll be good. It'll be a challenge and you know, what else am I gonna do? So I ended up going to law school um, in New York. I went to Columbia um, and I did a joint degree between Columbia and um, University College London. So mm -hmm. I did my JD from Columbia and then my master's in law from UCL. So three years, two programs. Fantastic. Um, and then, you happen to have worked, I think, with the vice president or the president at, at, at Warner. Yes, yeah, so I practiced law for four and a half years. Probably two years in, I kind of knew I didn't want to do this. <laughs> um, mainly because I just felt like, you know, when you're a lawyer, you're just doing a bunch of drafting. And at some point I was like, this is not really that dynamic for me you know like I was doing debt finance law so the mm -hmm. firm that I was working at we were working primarily with banks and then I thought to myself well maybe I'll go to a law firm that represents like the borrowers like the companies because mm -hmm. then it's closer to the business and you have to understand the business when you're you're drafting these documents and then it turned out that that wasn't that you know it wasn't <laughs> giving me the edge that I was looking for um, so it was like around like uh, three and a half years in, I was trying to figure out, okay, what's my next step going to be? Um, and I got really serious around like after the six year, the six month mark. Um, and this opportunity came up um, to work with the CEO of International mm -hmm. of Warner Music. Um, and it seemed like kind of like a dream position because obviously brought back 
my affinity for music, um, but also mixed with the commercial side because the role was essentially um, a director of strategy and operations. Mm -hmm. So he was overseeing our whole portfolio as a company, excluding the US and UK. So that's all of the different international affiliates. Um, and what he was looking for was an MBA candidate, someone who'd gone to business school. And I was like, I didn't go to business school. I'm a lawyer, but I'm really smart and I can figure it out. So um, after a bunch of interviews, they gave me the shot. Um, and yeah, so that's how I ended up at Warner um, working here. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just, you know, a simple thing for me. I was really jumping into the deep end of an industry that I didn't really know much about. I didn't know much about the lingo. I didn't know anything about the company. Um, and I was in, in a completely different role. Like I wasn't there as a lawyer. I was there to help assist him in thinking about strategy across all those markets. Um, so I ended up um, taking it upon myself. I took a couple classes at NYU, just like corporate finance and accounting, because I, I needed to like kind of immerse myself and start to think you know, in a way that was not like a lawyer. Um, so I did all this at the same time as I was working and learning and understanding the business, blah, 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 blah. And yeah, four years later, this opportunity came up um, that the business was looking to restructure our presence here on the continent. And they asked if I would be willing to move to South Africa um, to come here. And I said, why not? And here you are. Here I am. I'm going to take you back over to that interview. Out of everybody that applied was at the interview, what do you think now, looking back, what do you think was the defining thing for you to be able to get that post? I mean, you'd have, to, you'd have to interview my old boss. Come on. But I think, <laughs> I mean, I, I think that I was very humble about the fact that, like, I didn't really know much about the industry. I was very honest about it but I was also um, able to articulate kind of why I was really keen on learning more mm -hmm. and how my commercial background, even as a lawyer, would mm -hmm. tie into, you know, the work. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, like music is, if you drill down to it, it's really two sets of rights associated with a the song. There's the master's right, and then there's the, the songwriting, mm -hmm. um, the publishing part. And I think at the very core of this business is understanding law and legal principles is very important like mm -hmm. from this core asset having two different rights associated with it to the fact that every interaction every relationship between any entity requires mm -hmm. a contract requires mm -hmm. an agreement so mm -hmm. thinking about different structures and being able to like be on the spot and be malleable and creative in the ways that we approach different relationships um, I think my legal background has been like extremely helpful. Like I still draft sometimes, sometimes mm -hmm. I don't pull in our lawyer. I'm just like, okay, I'll, I'll fix this and I can send it across. So I think for me, I was able to kind of articulate how this would be helpful um, in terms of approaching this work. Absolutely. While going through um, like your sequence of events, I found a, I saw a deal maker and, and we're looking at some of the incredible deals that you've been responsible for, like AudioMac and the whole digital distribution. Yes. I won't take credit for the digital stuff because we have a whole team there. <laughs> but, but I found a deal maker there, and I think um, your your seniors at the time would have said they would have probably said she would be good for the Africa deal. 
what what can you tell me about your ability to be able to see opportunities and be able to um, grab them right there and then because I really felt that that is one of your strongest points of character yeah I mean I won't undermine myself but I will say that like I was really lucky to work with some really incredible deal makers like my my boss that hired me um, is very you know creative thinker when it came to structures and my boss now um, Alfonso Perisoto who runs mm -hmm. emerging markets is one of the most dynamic like deal makers that I've ever come across and he's been a real mentor for me um, um, and I still lean on him a lot when I'm thinking about these things. And another thing is like, I think he's been really supportive of, you know, calculated risk taking. He's very like ambitious. And mm -hmm. I think that's given me, or it gave me anyway, the confidence mm -hmm. to also step into that, you know, position of like, okay, like let's take risks, but let's take risks that make sense. And let's figure out how to protect ourselves, but also like create value. Afrobeat, you, you're from Nigeria originally, and when Afrobeat now... I'm a naturalized South African citizen. No. no I'm <laughs> kidding, I just have a permanent residency. <laughs> but my South African name is Mpumi. Mpumi? <laughs> Jeez, okay, that, 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 that is close a to... A very home. real name, a very real South African name. Oh. Oh. <laughs> okay, you know what, you, you sound like a local actually I swear, now. I swear. <laughs> what what did you think to yourself or what happened when Afrobeat, it's always been there, but when it really started going meteoric, like what Amapiano is doing now, globally, seeing Afrobeat get that sort of reception, where, you, where were you at the time actually? What were you doing? Yeah, so I started at Warner in 2016 and one mm. of the first things was at this interview with my old boss, mm. um, he had this map of the world and everywhere that we were operating in the world was colored in blue. Mm -hmm. And then the continent of Africa, the only thing that was blue was South Africa. Um, and so like, I said to him, I was like, it's Nigeria, I'm very offended by this map. This doesn't make any sense, you know? <laughs> and so we got into this conversation and that was actually one of the reasons I really wanted to um, work at the company and be sort of at the precipice of this shift that I knew was gonna come. But it wasn't always, obvious like when mm. i first started for the first two years 2016 2017 it was still very fringe mm. and like the idea of like us investing in africa was was very much something that i was like pushing i was like and alfonso was one of the first people that was like i get it because he came from the latin american market um but i did presentation after presentation after presentation 2016 2017 i think i did like 32 versions of a presentation just saying hey guys, there's a real opportunity in Africa. We really gotta pay attention to it. Like, let's not miss this boat. And I, like, just any chance I got, I was talking about it internally. And this is when I was in New York. So it's like, to see how pe how little people knew or were aware of, of the genre then, to like, fast forward to 2018, 2019. I mean, I lived it real time, you know? And so that's really fascinating for me to see, but it was also a great learning experience for me to understand that like, people can't always see the things that you can see like really clearly. So it's really important to like, for you to believe in like your vision and to have conviction in it. Um, whether or not people are hearing you or, you know, whatever, but like having that conviction it makes it so much more worth it when things start to pan out, you know?
Um, because that period where I was like, hey guys, like let's look at this. I'm looking, talking to all the senior managers and everyone's like, yeah, sure, of course. And then nothing really happens. The first time that I knew, okay, something is shifting is um, I, in 2018, like around March, Alfonso was like, okay, let's go to Nigeria. You know, like after like a year of scheming and talking, he was like, let's just go. And he booked his ticket, I booked my ticket. We, had, we were there, we took a bunch of meetings and we came back with some ideas about companies that we could invest in. And that's how the Chocolate City deal came about, was kind of through this year of like really sitting down with Alfonso and figuring out how, what kind, you know, how do we get this done? And then this trip that we went on, and then following that, we brought the boss that hired me and mm. the head of recording music, Max. We all went to Nigeria um, and came here to South Africa for um, around the time of Global Citizen. That was December 2018. So that whole like April to December was very transformative in terms of all the things that we've been talking about for a really long time were actually coming into fruition. Um, and people were physically taking the time to come and see, okay, what's going on on the continent, you know? And so that was, it's been very like, it's been amazing to see, but it also helps me frame the journey of other genres and what that could look like. So for a piano, I look at it through the lens of, okay, what happened with how people were um, interacting or perceiving Afrobeats. Mm -hmm. um, and how does that tie into like this other genre, piano, like how are we, what are the differences? What are the things that will make the journey a little bit easier? What will make it a little bit harder? Um, so those are the things that I used to frame, like how I think about other opportunities. Wow, um, I'm, I'm actually learning a lot. Diverts, uh, you know, when we, we when we plan for interviews, we will probably know what the next question will be. And I think I was just picked up from what you've been saying, which it brings me to my next question, which I didn't plan for. Relationships in business, how important was that for you? Because it just sounds to me as if you were one of the different or unique few that thought like that, but you probably had some really good relationships or um, you were trusted. Your vision eventually, I mean, was a vision that they went with. How important are relationships within the corporate space? Oh my gosh, I think that is the most uh, valuable currency, to be honest. Um, and I spend a lot of time um, nurturing relationships. Mm. A really good friend who is the studio engineer at Atlantic Records, um, mm. Ebony, and I always quote this because when she said it, I was like, damn, that's true. She was like, always make time for time. So there are always times where you're like, I'm so busy, I can't do this, like I can't go. And in those moments, a lot of the time I'll say, okay, well, I know I'm really busy, but I need to like make space for this person um, because I don't know what this interaction is gonna yield. It might be something even bigger than this like thing that's like keeping me super busy. So like, I always anchor around that, like making time for time and really like pushing myself even times when I like feel, again, really tired or really wanna go. Um, I try to remember, okay, every single interaction that you have with somebody, you have a potential transformative like event, you know, and so always leave room for grace and um, happenstance, really. Mm -hmm. and, that, and, and, and that obviously worked well for you. Um, I'm just trying to think to myself, in America, was there anybody else who was thinking like how you were thinking? Because now you are in Africa and the vision you had maybe they might have not seen, not everybody would have seen it, but um, now here you are and I'm sure 
this is going to open up a lot of other avenues for, for, for the expansion of water. But in America, were there others or are there others that actually you might share the same vision besides your uh, seniors? I mean, now it's like, this isn't, this isn't revolutionary. Like, mm-hmm. it's now crossing over in a really substantial way. So, like, most people are now very familiar with mm-hmm. Afrobeats and, and piano and or people in this space anyway. But I do think at the time, like, everyone was very... Um, I think the common refrain mm-hmm. was just that there's no money. Like, there's a lot of talent, but there's no money, you mm-hmm. know? And I think that that... I always found that to be a little bit circuitous <laughs> and mm-hmm. also just a fallacy. Um, I do think that we have a really long way to go in order to change the narrative about there being money on the continent. So mm-hmm. the export factor, the fact that a lot of African content is generating value outside of the continent is a fact, and it's not something I think anybody can stop. But there's still definitely work to do on the continent, like with in terms of like performance, performance rights organizations in different countries. Like South Africa has a pretty functional one with like Paso, Sampra, all of them, mm-hmm. and they do a pretty good job. But I think in all the key markets to start with, we definitely need you know a replication of that because I think it'll really help to change the real narrative on the continent. But when when we were talking about it initially, and people would just kind of cast Africa away as like, oh, there's no money. I never. I never understood that. I was like, of course there's money. There might not be money um, there. There's definitely money to be made in terms of like exporting our content because that's the most, one of the most valuable exports I think we have. Mm-hmm. And, and, and why do you, interestingly enough, uh, I've picked up through my audience analytics as well that overseas we sell better than at home. Why has that been? Because I think it's another conundrum for even African artists still like we try to figure it out like I can sell it overseas instead of home and then after a while it's sort of I'm not going to say dilutes but it creates a sort of disconnect from the continent where artists see themselves. There's nothing wrong with going overseas but what is it that you think we need to understand about the music business so that we understand how to sell it better but at the same time how to keep the money from music. Yeah, I just, I mean, I'm going to break down the question a mm-hmm. little bit because the reason that there's not a lot of money on the continent is due to what I just said. There's not a ton of, um, I guess, performance rights organizations mm-hmm. or organizations that are paying money to rights holders for mm-hmm. the, the use of their content mm-hmm. outside of South Africa. But there are also a bunch of macroeconomic you know, issues. So mm-hmm. like the average revenue per user in the US is going to be much higher than the average mm-hmm. revenue per user in South Africa. Mm-hmm. So that in and of itself means exactly. like there's just less money available. Mm-hmm. And, and we could go back to talk about colonialism mm-hmm. and how that impacted, mm-hmm. but that's all the point of the podcast. But um, I think my worry or like the reason that I think it's very important to continue to focus on building this infrastructure mm-hmm. on the continent is that if you consistently are looking externally, um, if you just have a, a solely export economy, you become extremely dependent on mm-hmm. outsiders. And so, not that I think it's a fad or you know just a phase, but mm-hmm. the moment that you're not getting that consumption externally, things are going to fall apart. So it's really important to build your base in order to make that sort of trend sustainable, if that makes sense. So like, I think that like the biggest priority for 
anybody who cares about the industry is to just ensure that like rights holders and creators have an infrastructure in which to get paid fairly for the use of the content. Do you think music producers in, in, in let's say in South Africa or in the continent and artists, because there's always that gap between those, that relationship between the music producers and the artists, do you think they have a synergy in terms of understanding how important that is, the music rights? Uh, I mean, I think it's not sexy. It's like, you know, pretty um, in the nitty gritty. So like mm -hmm. maybe, and also it requires, it's like, if you think about game theory and like, you know, a lot of people are just self-interested. It's like, am I gonna pick the choice that means I'm gonna get less? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and the other person might still get more. Mm -hmm. I think you need a coalition and you need people to say, this is the system that we're trying to build and this is what we need to do to build it and this is how we're gonna support this construction or whatever. Um, I don't know that there's a consensus right now, but I mean, it's something that I think is like super important. And that's why organizations like Sampra, like Riza, all of them are really important, but like you have to get participation from these creators um, in order to, so that everyone's aligned. And I think it, it, take, it takes a lot of time and a lot of commitment um, and not everybody's willing to put that time and commitment to sit in meetings and be like, hey, like, I'm gonna actually represent like the artists on this committee and I'm gonna make sure that artists' voices are heard. But it takes a lot of time and it takes mm -hmm. a lot of a lot out of someone. So do I think that um, that's gonna change? I you know it's tough to say. <laughs> and then digital, let's let's bring it back more to the now. How do you think digital music distribution is gonna aid our ability in Africa to make money or to better understand the business of music. Is it helping or is it just an, a way to make music more accessible to everybody? Yeah, um, I think it's absolutely going to help to digitize and have everybody pay, you know, fixed costs to access music like it's prevalent with streaming and across mm -hmm. the world. But um, I think we have such a long way to go. Like the numbers are still, in terms of penetration, mm -hmm. um, the numbers are still very low. So in South Africa, there are like 2.5 million paid subscribers on streaming and then 2.5 free. So that's about 5 million. Mm -hmm. um, and the population is like almost 60 million or something. Yeah. So if you think about the percentage of the population that is streaming, it's still extremely low, you know, um, 12% or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, and you can go across the continent and it's, it's, so Nigeria has less than a million paid subscribers, but 14, but 14 million free. There were like over 100, 200 million people. 213 million or so. Why do you think that is? Because we all, most of well, with mobile phones. Yeah, I mean the cost of data. Mm -hmm. So like a lot of people aren't willing to, it's expensive, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and people are still transitioning from the idea that music consumption should be free. Mm -hmm. And a lot of countries have done that. So I remember being in college, right? And mm -hmm. like you would take the YouTube link and then you would like mm -hmm. rip it and then that's how you get like, you know? And I remember being like, I would, like, why would I ever pay for Spotify? You know, I don't mm -hmm. get it, it's like free. But then upon getting, you know, getting onto the platform and realizing, wait, I can just like access everything like here. 
then it's like I can't even re- I can't believe that I used to go and download songs one at a time. So I think there is like an education that has to happen with the consumer of just un- like getting them hooked onto this way of consuming music that's much easier, much more efficient, and then they see the value in in the service. Like that's my opinion anyway. Um, but we just have a long way to go just because we were later. I mean, Spotify didn't open their office here or start hiring, I think, until 2020 mm-hmm. or something like that. So it's early days for, for digital streaming, but we've also got Boomplay, Audio Mac, a lot of uh, Apple Music, a lot of players um, who are going to be you know, really helpful in terms of increasing those numbers. But I think the real challenge is going to be converting the free users to mm. paid. Um, and it's, you know, a dialogue that we always have with like our streaming platforms. But like I said, the, you know, the average um, spending power of a person, mm. you know, the continent is lower than in America. So you can't use the same numbers. Like you're going to have to weight it based on like the, the spending power. And so that also reduces the amount of revenue that's available. But I think I mean, in Nigeria, if it's 15 million and like about 16 million out of about 200 or so, like, what is that? Like 8% of the population, less than 8% are using streaming or something like that. Um, so the number is pretty, it's pretty, pretty low. Okay. Um, yeah. What's the one thing in, in the last couple of years that has really stood out for you in terms of Africa and how we consume music and whether it be digital or if you're paying for it, where you say there's an opportunity here that we just have not grasped, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think um, something that when we came here for the Global Citizen show, um, we went and my boss, Alfonso, um, we saw Casper perform and we saw 80,000 people doing the same orchestrated dance, you know? Mm-hmm. And we're looking at the numbers for streaming, they were much lower back then. And it's like, well, there is obviously a huge segment of the population that's not captured in the digital space yet. Mm-hmm. So like, for us, that's what's really exciting is like from these numbers, we see that the penetration is really low, but there are like a huge swath of really um, avid music fans that we still have to capture. Mm-hmm. And that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. So. It's, it's an anecdote that you know he brings up all the time but i also remember like i wasn't surprised but i remember seeing him being like this doesn't compute like there's something missing here mm-hmm. like what's what is this yeah no it's just you know it's just that they haven't converted to digital mm-hmm. and every country has their own journey to getting there but like when i first started at warner around 2016 2017 was when a lot of the western european countries were switching from physical mm-hmm. to digital and so it's always like you see a huge drop in revenue of the industry and then it's followed by growth because people who stop consuming physically start consuming digitally. So like it's just when does that happen is is kind of where everyone's waiting on and trying to predict, but it, it will happen. Fantastic. My last two questions to you. Um, the artists starting out today or in the last five years how best should they position themselves? I find that artists struggle with how they position themselves, whether corporate and the art, how do I make myself sellable? How do yeah. you advise? <sighs> That's a golden question. Uh-huh. I think mm-hmm. it's never been more easy to get your music heard, but it's also never been more difficult to get your music heard. Mm-hmm. 
So it means like the avenues of getting your music out there distributed is pro it's proliferated, proliferated mm -hmm. extraordinarily in the last few years. Like you can go on TuneCore, put your music, everyone from China to mm -hmm. everyone can hear your music. Mm -hmm. But because everyone has this opportunity, there's so much more music out there that people have a really hard time sifting through and finding and cutting through. And so it's never, in my opinion, been more important for you to have an authentic brand that really um, focuses on what, how am I engaging with my audience? Like, how, what are they getting from me that they can't get from someone else? Like, I think Spotify published a, a, a stat that like 100,000 songs are published every day or something insane and growing. So like, what makes your, what makes you different from all of those things, you, all of those pieces of content that are going out there? And I think, like we really try to focus on how are we curating brands as opposed to just thinking about music. This is like a whole package. Um, unless you're just doing, you know, doing the music to do the music because mm. it makes, you know, it gives you life, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And you don't care about like Money. the commercial aspect. Mm. I think that what's really important is really thinking about the, um, the artist in a much more multifaceted way mm. um, and understanding that it's really about okay what's pulling people in how am i connecting and engaging with people and showing people who i am so that they want to consume more of what i'm selling that being the music it's not my last question to you is what's the one question you like to ask me <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> let's do that well what was the most interesting thing that you learned about me through this interview through this interview yeah. is that you really are a a, a, a a deal maker however you are somebody who learned as they were going through everything because for me it was still amazing that um, how quickly you just went from studying law and then music and then now you're heading a one of the biggest companies your ability to explain things because I think more than anything, sometimes our ability to be understood or, 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 or understand just needs that one person who's able to explain things really well. So I think with you, um, that's just I understood why this person is at the position where they are. And you're not Hollywood. <laughs> what does you know, that mean? You know, okay, so that, 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 that means I would have thought um, you would have had like maybe extra security for example. What? Or you might have. No, come on, come on, come on. That's ridiculous. No kidding. Security, I'm dead. No, the thing, the thing that you said about like explaining things, like I'm super direct and I'm very abrupt with people. Mm -hmm. And one of my pet peeves is people making things like overly complicated. Mm -hmm. um, because I think it's a number one, it's either an intention to like obfuscate or you don't actually know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. There are two options. It's like either you're, you want to confuse me because you think you have more power if I'm confused, mm -hmm. or you really just don't know what you're saying and so you don't know how to actually explain it. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm very like careful and I try to be very clear um, and I try to be, yeah, very direct. When did you conquer a male dominated? Um, industry i mean they, they, they i don't think work. i've conquered it 
I think you have, you know. <laughs> Aren't you the managing director for Warner Music? Yeah, Africa? that doesn't mean I've conquered it. I deal with it. You want it all? Yeah. Want more? No, no, it's not that. No, it's I'm not even about wanting more. I'm it's kidding. more just like every day, mm-hmm. you know, you're confronted with um, subconscious or conscious biases about women and particularly mm-hmm. black women. And honestly, I'm not a robot, so like things do impact me and it does like. You know, it is difficult sometimes and it does feel very lonely sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I think like I have a very strong sense of self and you know, and, to, and I also get a lot of therapy. So I, I pay for my, I pay for my, um, <laughs> you know, my ability to deal with these things. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but I have a really strong sense of self and I also have a very strong sense of purpose. and. Um, I think that's what really keeps me focused in times where it's like more challenging. Um, and I think like I've always been in situations where I'm the minority in a lot of the ways. And so I do find like actually strangely, I find it energizing sometimes because it's like you kind of have to just figure out everything on your own and you get an opportunity to do things the way you want to, or at least that's how I perceive it. So like, there aren't a ton of women in this position and there mm-hmm. aren't a ton, a ton of women that look like me who've gotten to this role. And so that means I don't have a lot of people that I can look up to and say, that's exactly how I want to do this. I have people that I can say, oh, that, you know, that's kind of interesting. I'm, I'm obviously asking for advice, but like, I always really try to come back to like myself because, you know, man is not going to have the same perspective as I do on anything. And so, he, you know, the way that he approaches things is always going to be different. So I can take elements of it, but I've never wanted to lead like a man. I always want to lead like me. I'm a woman, you know, I'm black. And these are things that are really important that I try to keep at the cornerstone of every decision that I'm making. Mm-hmm. And how's about me and dad? How's your family? <laughs> yeah, they're great. <laughs> they're, they're wondering why I moved. I don't know, 25 hours away from them, but um, they've always been really. My parents are like very atypical, I guess, African parents because they've always given us a bunch of autonomy. And like I went to raise when I was 13. I remember my dad saying, "Well, you know, we've kind of finished raising you now. Like you raise yourself from now on." And that's actually really stuck with me. Like. Um, when I want to do something, I tell them I want to do it. I'll, I don't solicit like, hey, what, they'll tell me, hey, like, you know, I've thought about this and it's like, yes, I have it. And then they always like will support our decisions, like myself and my brother. And I've always felt like, uh, I was like kind of a mini adult. Like I didn't have much of a childhood. So like, it's my relationship with my parents is almost, it's been very like, even like I've found them to be like, peers you know in a lot of ways and they've just been like super supportive in every like sort of facet of my development and they've always trusted my decision my decisions and my gut do you have brothers or i have one brother older he's younger, younger. oh two okay. years younger oh he is and I'm very close how often do you go home which is the states um well at first i was traveling quite a lot you know i moved here in november 2021 um, but I haven't been home for six months now, so I'm going home next week. What do you like most about South Africa? Um, honestly, the vibe and the like, 
in Nigeria, like obviously they have really nice, like fun parties and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I find that in South Africa, when you go out, like people really just want to have a good time. Like they want to dance, and I love dancing. So like I'll just go out and I'll dance by myself. Like and, and no cares. one and no one cares. Like no one cares if you're dancing by yourself. You know, and that's like it's such a vibe. Like it's just such a good like good energy place. Um and. Like when I first was coming, I really felt like it was gonna be like a temporary, like I don't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. I've only visited like as work and for holidays and stuff. But like I've just been really, I have a great, like number one, my team's amazing. And mm -hmm. I just met some really incredible people here. So um, not that I'm saying that it's like home, but it, it's starting to feel very homely. Yeah. It's a good thing. Yeah, it's great. All right, and last question. This is the last question. Wanna, um, they are like the young guns out here. Are we? Is that well, what everyone's saying? Well, yeah, that's the top We're the, the young, young guns. Yeah, I love that. Out of the top three. We're the underdogs. Yeah. I like being in a. How does that make you feel? What, what, what's up with one? It makes me feel great. I think it's like awesome. We get to do something, some really cool shit. Like mm -hmm. we, you know, I, I don't like to play by a rule book. So like, mm -hmm. and I like to get things done. So. You know, when people come to me with ideas, I am definitely very like thoughtful about, okay, like, you know, explain it to me more, but like, I'm very much, okay, if I really, if I, if I like the idea, let's go do it. You know, and I try to like, not put a lot of obstacles in people's ways to doing things. But the one thing I always do is like, if you want to do this and you feel, I really give people the opportunity to be accountable for their risk taking. So I'm like, if you believe this and you want to do it, and I support you in doing it, and it doesn't work, you gotta take the L. Mm. You know, but I will give you what you need, but you have to take the W's and the L's mm -hmm. together. Tell me, it's been wonderful talking to you. I've actually, yeah. I've probably like uh, reached all my goals this year <laughs> <laughs> talking to you. And uh, shout out, I just want to say thank you to Garth. You've got a very phenomenal team. I work a lot with, uh, well, I've consulted a lot with Eric. Uh, yeah, an amazing team. Yeah. Wow, I'm very lucky. My team's amazing. They've been like my family away from my family, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know that if I didn't have a team that was like this, like I would have made it or I would be as like, you know, I would be where I am today. So mm -hmm. I'm so grateful to them for everything they do. They go above and beyond. And mm -hmm. like, we really are underdogs. We have a really small team. And the things that we've been able to do in one year, I it's not lost on me how, you know, incredible they've had to be and how much of themselves that they've given to this work um, for us to get here. And we still have so much more to do. Um, but yeah, I'm just, I'm really blessed. It's been amazing, thank you so much. And um, yeah, uh, you can catch this podcast on Spotify, Google, Apple, and ladies and gentlemen, that is the managing director for Warner Music Africa, Mrs. Timmy. Miss Timmy. Yeah, Miss. <laughs> when are you getting married? I'm uh, joking. I'm, joking. I'm divorced. <laughs> <laughs> you have yourself a wonderful day. Nice to meet you. I'm Thank you guys so much for coming. This audio is made with Audio Toolkit for Windows Store. Downloaded for free now.